If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. If this is the first time tuning in to And Security for All, welcome and welcome back to all of our regular listeners. Hope everyone had a great week. Um, We here in the Midwest got our first little bit of chill this morning. We are almost got to freezing, so looks like winter is on its way, but we have definitely a beautiful fall day now. Um, For those of you that are in the cyberset space, I assume you guys are having a very busy week. There's a lot going on, like there always is. Um, A couple of a couple news headlines this week that, and I'm sure we're going to talk about more with my guests today. There's some news about Fortinet confirming some zero-day vulnerabilities um, exploited in an attack. And we also are hearing about Toyota Motor Corporation had some um, secure code. They, they had some customer email addresses that were breached. And we all have been hearing about the U.S. airports and everything going on with that. And um, interesting, I saw on on some news today that the Uber's uh, Uber's chief security officer was found guilty for hiding the data breach that they had from the um, FTC and um, concealing a felony. So very interesting stuff going on in the industry this uh, week. Lots to talk about. Perfect day to have my guests that I have today on and security for all. I have Joshua Crumball. He is an engaging and internationally respected cybersecurity subject matter expert. He's a published um, author. He's a keynote speaker. We you know, he's out at Black Hat RSA. During his ethical hacking career, he has never encountered a single network that could keep him or his teams out. He's also accomplished many impressive social engineering feats, such as uh, talking his way into bank vaults, Fortune 500 data centers, corporate offices, restricted areas of casinos. I can't wait to hear about these stories. His experience of all things security led him to realize something had to change. This realization led him to his company, Fish Firewall. He's the CEO, and he is one of the world's most accomplished ethical hackers. So I'm super excited to have Joshua on the show today. Welcome, Joshua. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am good. I'm excited to talk to you today and learn all about you and what what you have going on in your world. Um, but tell us, tell us about how, how did how did all this start? Were you like a kid that was mischievous and getting in trouble, and it led to where you are now? Well, I wasn't too mischievous of a kid, uh, but uh, but there might have been a little bit of that. Uh, I mean, when I when I was younger, it was always very much about uh, I, I like to know how things work, and uh, and so I remember. I guess I'm dating myself a little bit, but the first time I got on the internet, I wanted to know how the websites worked and how to build them, um, and that led me down a path of learning to code, and uh, and very quickly from there, 
uh, because I, I was always very much the type that asked a lot of questions. I found some of these sort of underground hacking forums that, believe it or not, have existed since the 90s um, and got into them and started uh, learning about uh, cybersecurity. And I mean, this was back in a time when we had zero security on anything. I mean, they they called it hacking, but you didn't have to hack because no one had any passwords or anything protected at all. Um, but that sort of got me into security. I realized very quickly those were some dangerous skills to have that were going to land me in trouble if I uh, if I wasn't careful. Um, and I turned to a career in tech and uh, spent uh, quite a bit of time in uh, IT and then development. Um, and then I went into marketing for a while, which is way off course. Uh, but uh, but then at one point I realized or found out that there was this thing called ethical hacking. And, uh, and that day I decided this is what I'm going to do. Um, no joke, put in my notice at the place uh, and my marketing job at the time and, uh, and went on to start studying ethical hacking with no idea of what I was going to do next. Um, spent six months just immersive studying like 12 to 14 hours a day, learning everything I could. Landed a job at a really, uh, well, we'll say just we, I landed a job in the industry, uh, used that to get in with one of the top firms in the industry. And next thing you know, I was running their team. Um, and, and that largely uh, happened because I, I was very good at some of the technical, but I was also very good at the human, so or the human element, uh, which I contribute largely to all of the psychology that I studied while I was in marketing. Uh, so that's a little bit of how I how I got here. And uh, and and from there, when I, I started doing these ethical hacking engagements, I found out I was really good at social engineering and uh, and then just started talking about it. Because when when I heard people talk about social engineering, they made it so complex that uh, I felt like I wanted to provide a resource out there that maybe simplified some of these social engineering tactics, because you know, it's fun to talk about neuro-linguistic programming, but it's a lot more difficult to utilize that in everyday life. So what are your thoughts about um, past real live hackers that are now ethical hackers? Um, do, do you know a lot of them and, and do you work with them to gain some of their expertise on what they were doing prior to being an ethical hacker? Um. I'm not a real big fan, uh, and I think it sets a very dangerous precedent, and it's not what we want to be teaching our ne the next generation of youth is that, uh, hey, go do bad things and you'll be rewarded. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that there's two different types of people here. There's the ones that uh, never really did anything to be malicious, um, that only did it once and uh, and just maybe made a mistake. But then you've got others that uh, that they they proved that they really had some serious ethical uh, you know boundary issues or or maybe that they they're non-ethical rather. Um, and, and especially those, I don't think we should be uh, readily um, accepting in the industry. And for the most part. Uh, we've, we've gone across the board. This industry has said, no, if, if you're convicted of anything that is, you know, anything from financial theft to hacking, you can't touch this industry. Uh, I think the exception probably being the CIA is the only one that doesn't care. Um, outside of that, it's, there's very few exceptions. I know we have people, uh, like Mitnick in our industry. Uh, but, uh, but in, in general, I think that it sets a very bad precedent. 
Yeah, I I 100% agree with you. I remember when, I can't remember if it was Target or Equifax, the girl that hacked and and she went to prison. And the first thing I thought is, hmm, wonder how long it's going to be until they pull her out and she becomes the next, you know, Kevin Mitnick. So um, it's it's just, and then we have the Frank Abinal or however you say his name. Um, but Abagnale is different because he devoted his life to, uh, you know, he worked for the FBI forever. And so like he, he did a, a clear about face. Most of his crimes were committed when he was very young um, and still, you know, learning lessons and then things like that. Um, so I, I do see Abagnale as a little bit of a difference uh, there because he did change over to law enforcement. Um Whereas, you know, others maybe uh, didn't spend that time working with law enforcement and, and they didn't really change because, uh, you know, if you, if you take I mean, uh, not to talk negatively about somebody, but if you do take somebody like Mitnick, I mean, the last time he was convicted, I think he was almost 40 years old, which is a little bit different than an Abagnale. I yeah. actually like Abagnale. <laughs> well, I would like to have him on the show. I had his, uh, I can't, re- you may know he's teamed up with a partner. They're trying to do passwords, like, uh, you know, no passwords. You know who I'm talking about? Um, I can't remember his name. He was on the show when I first started and he's, uh, Frank is partnering with him. So one of these days I am going to get Frank on the show, but, um, what are you, um, what what's keeping you busy this week? You know, you guys are fish firewall. So, so what's going on with you guys and what's, what are you seeing that's happening lately and what should we be concerned about? Oh, I think the biggest thing is, uh, this whole Russian Ukrainian thing, uh, conflict is really starting to increase the amount of cyber attacks we're seeing. Um, now a lot of this is, uh, sort of, uh, you know, anecdotal from uh, me. Um, uh, so I, I don't want to say that, you know, uh, it's, it's 100% proven. But what what is proven is that we're seeing a lot of Russian linked hacking groups that are getting very, very aggressive in the United States. Um, and they appear to be targeting our critical infrastructure. Uh, this appears to be some sort of precursor to larger attacks. Um, and I know everyone's talking about the the nuclear option because that comes up in uh, in the news, and Putin's mentioned it a few times. Uh, but what is far more likely and certainly going to happen before any of that is an all-out cyber war, um, and probably some infrastructure attacks. But I'm on the cyber side, um, and, and I think that cyber war is is almost definitely going to start with those. You know, uh, Russia's famous for using black hats in their state-sponsored hacking. And, uh, and so I think it starts with the black hats and, and by the time it moves over to their actual cyber army attacking us, it's, it's too late. Um, so I, I mean, that, that's, what's been keeping us busy. We're seeing a, a just a mass increase in, uh, specifically phishing attacks against office 365. Um, and, uh, and they're using a, a reverse proxy in order to bypass multi-factor. So they're, they're fairly sophisticated. Uh, actually they're even more sophisticated than that, but I don't want to get too technical. Well, yeah. Can you break that down for us a little bit? And first of all, for my viewers on, uh, for secure on the radio show on voice America, can you explain to them exactly what the difference is between, you know, a black hat and a white hat and what that means? And then 
you know, we know what MFA is, but tell us how they're reversing it and what we should, what we should be worried about and looking for. Yeah. So, uh, so first of all, uh, Black Hat is a criminal bad hacker. We were just talking about the people that were on the bad side before they came over to the good side. Um, black hats are just purely on the bad side. And, uh, and white hats are purely on the good side. Um, and then they do have a, a third hat. It's gray hat. It's somebody that's a little bit more in the middle. It's somebody that would never do anything malicious against, you know, maybe their, their own country, but they might do something malicious against a foreign adversary. Um, but, you know, for the most part, this industry is pretty black and white. You've got the, the people with very high ethical standards and the ones with, you know, no ethical standards. Um, and so Russia has been uh, for for years has been utilizing these black hats uh, that are in Eastern Europe as well as Russia to pull off some of their attacks. And uh, and so when I say they're they're utilizing their black hats as opposed to their cyber warriors, it's you know it's it's two different types of groups, and one has a lot more I guess deniability. Um, hence the reason that we're seeing all of this increase of uh, attacks out of that group uh, versus directly coming from the Russian government, in my opinion. So um, I, I noticed, you know, you, you reposted, you reshared something today of somebody that, you know, got hacked through an email. What, um, and I guess this person was sharing his story so it wouldn't happen, you know, to the rest of us. What what should we be cautious of? Because right now we all know don't open, you know, don't open attachments. You know, that that's kind of the thing that I feel like your average person knows. So beyond that, what else should we be looking for? Well, I, I will start by saying I'm not even sure that's common knowledge yet. Uh, there was a recent study done out of a university somewhere in southern Florida um, I, I wish I could give them credit, but I'm drawing a complete blank on the name of the university. Uh, but they did a study and they they found some really interesting results. So they, they asked the qued that exact question. Um, what happens when somebody gets a email that they deem suspicious to their inbox, uh, their personal inbox? And uh, what they found is that you've got this large group of people that will click on it. Uh, well, you know, that, that want to know what it is and they'll click on it. That's expected. And you've got a group of people that will delete it. Um, and that's expected. And you've got to be a group of people that will uh, report it. Also expected. The unexpected bit was that there was this fourth group of people that would actually forward that email to their work computers uh, because they felt like their work computers were so secure, there was no way they could get hacked. Um, so I think we have a little ways to go on getting that think before you click, don't open attachments to be like, you know, uh, sort of the same as uh, think uh, or I'd look both ways before you walk the street or cross the street. Um, but to that regard, I mean, it, it really comes down to watching out for red flags more than anything else. So everyone's always focused so much on the technical, but there are what are called cognitive biases. Uh, so it's basically... Our brains are pre-wired to act specific ways in specific scenarios. That's what we would call a cognitive bias. And so the social engineers, the bad guys, they understand this and they, they utilize these things in order to get us to do things. So the perfect example is uh, one of our, our 
phishing attacks. It just, uh, it, you know how cars will actually email you now and tell you if there's any check engine lights. And so one of our phishing attacks that's really effective is we just email people and it, it appears to be coming from their car saying, hey, you've got an issue with your transmission and your engine and uh, like a couple other things. Um, and it creates that fear. Like they, they freak out, like what is going on? I, you know, and, and because of that emotional reaction and that, that sort of gut or that instinctual response, they click before they get a chance to actually stop and think. So the red flags, uh, the, anytime you're tempted to act, anytime you feel any really strong emotion in your email, that's a red flag. And that means you need to step back. Um, you know, the obvious advice is think before you click and, you know, you can hover over the links to see where those, uh, those URLs go. Uh, but the biggest telltale sign of a fish is the emotions that come around it because that is what they're playing to. That is a really good point. I just had something kind of similar happen, you know, a couple of days ago I was on a call and someone on my team was like, you know, we have a Nashville event coming. This I got, I saw a text that saying our venue is not secured. Well, it put me in major panic mode, went to my phone while I'm on this call, searched that venue, you know, open an attachment because I needed to make sure that the contract, you know, and, and it was all just a false alarm. But I can see that because that panicked me. And, you know, I probably would have opened, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I could see myself opening something just because I needed to know instantly that it was okay. And I was busy doing something else. I was on a call at the same time. So, so that is a really good point, you know? Um, and if somebody opens something on their phone, is it going to, uh, is there a difference if you open an attachment on your phone other than opening an attachment on your computer? Uh, so it really depends on who's behind that attachment. Uh, so what I can tell you is that when I was working as an ethical hacker, my malware would be tooled to be able to detect what type of platform you were on. Um, and we would generally support the four major ones, Windows PCs, uh, Macs, uh, iOS, and uh, Android OS. So those would be the four that we would support. And if you would run it on any one of those, it would run a different version of malware. Uh, now I see, I would say a majority of malware I see is really more just tuned for one or two, or it's more from uh, mobile than it is for uh, desktop. But the reality is, is we don't know what's gonna be behind that. And you got the, the, you have to assume that no matter what device you're on, they can compromise that if you open an attachment or if you click on a link. Um, if you click on a link, they can inject code sort of on the fly. Um, so that's one of the, the sort of scary ones is that when you do go to a website, uh, the bad guys, uh, more often than not, they, they have a tool that first thing it does is it identifies what type of browser you're coming in from and what type of um, operating system is on that uh, device. And so, and then it says, okay, well, here's the versions. Here's what it's vulnerable to. And these smarter versions of malware will automatically start targeting you and, and put, pumping your or throwing malware at your browser. Uh, so, you know, once, once you've clicked, uh, it, it's best to assume you've been compromised. And at that point, it becomes report it as quickly as possible if it's on a work system. 
Um, and if it's on your, your personal system, uh, disconnect from the internet and, uh, and, you know, with windows and Mac, they've got, uh, tools to get rid of malware. Well, that, that right there is really great advice. Disconnect from the internet. You know, I mean, that, that's like something that, some people wouldn't even think of. We do have, I'm, I'm glad our audience is out there and starting to comment. Uh, Chris uh, Howitt, thanks for uh, listening today. He said, what's your thoughts on preview functions and apps and browsers? Oh, I hate them. I despise <laughs> them because we've seen a million vulnerabilities, maybe not a million, I, I exaggerated there, okay? But we've seen just a, a vulnerability after vulnerability where if you simply open images, it'll, uh, it will uh, exploit the computer or you simply load the email, it'll exploit. So um, these preview functions, uh, they're, they're basically the same as clicking. And that's the problem. That's the reason I don't like them. Um, I, I wish email was far more secure than it is. Um, and as opposed to pushing to get more secure, believe it or not, there's actually this large push that would make email less secure. Um, and that's because uh, the marketers and the executives, they've, they've all said, well, I wish email had the ability to do surveys. And, and they said, I wish email had the ability to do uh, video. And I wish the email had the ability to do this and this and this. And so um, as opposed to us pushing toward more secure, I, I'm afraid we're actually pushing toward less secure. Uh, the caveat being that most of us are moving to web-based uh, email clients, and that actually is a step forward with security because you don't have one more thing that has to be updated. So let's talk about this attack on what was happening at the airports. And it doesn't seem like it, maybe I'm wrong, that it was super major, but maybe it was. Um, what Can you let us know what was going on and what, um, what they were doing and what do you think their, their goal was on that? Uh, so, I mean, I, I think with the targeting of, of airports, it just comes back to targeting our critical infrastructure and the airports are the weak link here. Um, you know, airlines have a lot more money to support cybersecurity than the airports themselves do. I mean, I've worked uh, personally with some of the, like the, the chief information security officer um, of the I always say it wrong, but the Schiphol uh, Airport, Amsterdam Airport. Um, uh, but I've also talked with a bunch of others. I mean, that's one of the, the larger ones in the world. But the reality is, is most of us live in towns that have much smaller airports. And so you got to keep in mind that the, the smaller the airport, the smaller the budget for security. And, uh, and we, we don't go directly after like that 800 pound gorilla. We go after other lower hanging fruit or, or I say we, the bad guys do. So what that means is that, uh, is that as opposed to if I want to target Delta, the easiest way to go after Delta, or I know they just got an American airlines, so, uh, so maybe it's a bad example. So let's see, let's continue to use Delta. Um, <laughs> But the easiest way to go after Delta is not directly after them, but to go after these smaller airports that have very little security that aren't going to detect my attacks. Um, so I, I think it's multifold. Um, they're initially trying to, to cause some disruption, uh, which will cause some media hype. Uh, but I, I think there's something longer term here. And I, I think what they're also trying to do is get a backdoor uh, for longer or later attacks that'll happen uh, down the road.
So what did they end up accomplishing with this, this airport? I, I didn't hear a lot about it. You know, I, I, unfortunately haven't been reading a lot of news this week. So, um, what, what was the outcome of the whole attack? Uh, there were a lot of, uh, this was mostly disruptive, this particular attack. Um, which is part of the reason that I expect us to see a lot more in the future. Um, so there were some like DDoS attacks and, uh, and I believe there was some ransomware in there. Um, but, uh, but most of it was just disruptive. And, uh, and that tells me that, uh, that, you know, it, it's, we're going to see a lot more. This is just the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, I, I've seen this before. It, it's a pretty common tactic where, uh, the, the, the criminals or the bad guys or the, the, you know, enemy nations, um, they, they start with, the the, you know, disrupting and, and you're looking over here because you got this massive denial of service happening. And meanwhile, while this denial of service is happening, somebody's putting malware in over here. Um, often it's a, it's better, or it's about distraction as much as anything else. So um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Uber hack. And for those that are listening that don't know what happened, because we all use Uber, and I'll get to the question that's out there in a second. It's Carson. I'm glad he's here today. But can you just give us some insight on, um, you know, what happened with Uber and how would that affect us as people that are using Uber. I know I use Uber all the time. And why do you think their CEO covered that up? Uh, well, I, I can't say to the the direct uh, you know thought patterns of the the CEO. But I, I what happened with Uber was that uh, a hacker got onto Slack and uh, started pretending to be an employee and was able to interface with one of their actual employees. Um, and he used this to gain access to a number of different systems. Um, and it all comes down to this was a type of phishing attack or social engineering. I mean, the, the person was manipulated uh, over uh, a digital communications channel, phishing, uh, into doing something that they shouldn't do, social engineering. Um, and so this comes back to you've got to create a better, uh, more security aware culture within any organization. And it doesn't matter how big or small you are. Uh, if you don't train your people and you don't deal with your people, you're going to have catastrophic breakdowns uh, in, in your cybersecurity. And I think Uber is just a, a, an initial example of that. But we, we see more examples of this every day. Um, American Airlines, it came down to security awareness. Um, and, and with almost all of these, it comes down to security awareness. Even the Toyota hack, it was, you know, somebody got into a code branch, but this comes down to security awareness of the developers. And so time and time and time again, and over 90% of the breaches we hear about, it just comes down to, we need to do a better job at training our employees because they are our front line of defense. And, uh, and when you forget about your front line of defense and you don't properly or give them the proper tools, they inevitably have issues. And, uh, and Hollywood makes cyber out to be one of this, this highly complex thing that no one can understand. And it's not really true. Uh, but because of that, your average user is intimidated by cybersecurity. And so, 
until we like lower that that threshold or, or try to eliminate that barrier, that's the intimidation factor. Um, I think we're going to continue to fail and we're going to continue to see a lot of these whole pro high profile breaches. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think we can do a better job across the board, whether big company or small company at educating our users. Well, that is a good point. You know, I'm sure you have all the time people, if you say you're in cybersecurity and there's people that are not in the industry, they're probably like, oh, wow, you must be really busy. You know, that, that that's the kind of general comments I feel like is out there from people that aren't in cyber. And, you know, that's unfortunate that Hollywood does kind of portray you know, that, that image, uh, a couple of, uh, comments that we have, uh, Karsten Krauss, who is a, a CISO, he said small and me, and, and I mentioned he's a CISO because these are the guys too, that are really staying up all night, <laughs> you know, yeah. small and mid-sized companies are really what attackers are focusing on nowadays. Cybersecurity is not a big company issue anymore. And then, uh, Trent Brummel, who is, uh, ISO, he said, sometimes, it is a prob attack to see the responses. And then um, I, I'll let you comment if you have any comments on that. And Chris just said that Uber hack came just in time for Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Yes, we're in <laughs> Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And we're, we're halfway, through, halfway through it. <laughs> well, uh, my favorite comment there was Chris's. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, Karsten, um, Yes and no. I mean, I, I agree. They're absolutely targeting the small and mid-sized businesses more than they ever are at the large enterprises. But I think the Uber hack is, and the American Airlines hacks are both uh, really great examples to say no one's safe. Um, and it's, you know, if you get complacent, even for a second, you're you're going to have issues. And uh, and, you know, I heard an analogy of uh, 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 I knew somebody that uh, they had a, a multi-billion-dollar business, and uh, and I got brought in after they had sort of had a ransomware incident. But uh, uh, this, the president of this company, and I have become really good friends over the over the years. And uh, and what he keeps saying about his experience with malware is that they had been in business thirty-seven years, um, they'd never had any issues, and then one day they get hit with ransomware, and they get an a, eight figure ransom uh, the notice and they've hit payroll, which, you know, and uh, anyway, they've hit payroll and this is a business particularly, they have to get people paid very quickly. Um, and, uh, and so they ended up paying, uh, they got it down to low seven figures. It was probably the best negotiation I've ever seen on a ransomware, but they did end up having to pay. Um, and, and, you know, he, he says, uh, anytime anyone asks him about that experience, he says, you don't want to be the one caught, you know, naked on that horse riding down main street. And he says, that's how I felt when this whole, you know, ransomware incident happened. Um, and it's all in preparation. And, uh, and if, if you don't think it's going to happen to you, you're wrong. It is going to happen to you. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, that's scary stuff. I mean, that's what, why we do what we do, you know, at FutureCon, we travel all over the country, you know, bringing speakers like you, you know, and, you know, people need to come back out and come to come educate yourself, you know, instead of just doing your job every day and hoping it's not going to happen to you. Um, Carson said, uh, uh, did they get the encryption key or de decryption? 
Uh, no. So the analysts in this one were not able to recover the uh, decryption key. I mean, they did get the keys uh, for them, but they had to buy them. Uh, so if you're asking if they got them off of buying them, yes, they weren't able to forensically pull them from memory. So before you became an ethical hacker, were you uh, like, what's the difference between an ethical hacker and a pen tester? Were you a pen tester and then you became an ethical hacker? Oh, well, I guess it's it's the same thing. Yeah. So a penetration tester is an ethical hacker. Okay. Um, penetration testing is just when a company hires somebody like myself. Uh, typically, it, what a pen test looks like is they will ask me, can I break in? And it typically will be using any means necessary. Uh, they'll tell me what their most sensitive data is, and then I go after that. So that means I'm going to go after it from a, a digital computer hacking perspective, uh, but I'm going to go at it from a human hacking perspective. You've got email, phones, and, uh, and in-person. Um, and then finally, we test physical security. We would go in and, and literally break in in the middle of the night uh, or more often in the middle of the day. I always found out uh, breaking in in the broad daylight was far easier than not necessarily. It's pretty easy to break into any Fortune 500 company in the middle of the night, broad daylight. It doesn't matter if too many people coming and going to pay attention to who's coming and going and when. Well, it's, you know, Jonathan Kimmett, he's, I'm surprised he's not here, but he's a CISO for the University of Tulsa. And sometimes he'll, when I'm traveling, he'll host the show for me. And he had a pen tester on. And it was just, I love listening to those stories, you know, like the, the and he was as a young, young, young guy, you know, probably in his twenties and was able to walk through a bank, you know, and get to the back of the bank. So tell us how you got through to a bank vault and how that happened. Okay, so this was actually a fun one. I had always wanted, uh, so every pen tester has this conversation, if, if they do physical security anyway. Well, it'd be easier to talk my way in if I just set up an appointment. And so then the logical step is, well, I could go get a job off a fake resume, um, or I could just call up and see about getting an appointment. Well, I had this particular bank and uh and this was an interesting one because ironically, I had missed my kickoff call uh, because I was finishing up another pen test. And uh, and I get to the, the jump on this and uh, start phone calls. So within 15 minutes, I identify a possible, uh, I guess, a pretext that I wanted to try that I thought would really work. So I just call their main switchboard and uh, and ask for or give them my pretext to see who they transfer me to. That's why I mentioned I missed my kickoff, because at this point they transfer me to my trusted agent. Um, and I didn't know it was the trusted agent. Uh, and so the trusted agent is the one person in the company that knows every detail of the pen test, when we're going to be doing what. So the trusted agent is told things like, on this specific day, people will be uh, calling up your business, trying to get people to do things they shouldn't do. And on this specific day, someone will show up in person to try and get your employees to do things they shouldn't do. So you'd think my trusted agent wouldn't fall for any of it. Uh, but I didn't know it was my trusted agent at this point. I go through my pretext, which was this. I had found that they were using an email provider that... Uh, which is all public knowledge, I can look it up. Uh, but I found out that their email provider had a terrible track, or track uh, I guess, performance history 
with their clientele and everyone's complaining about how horrible their email is. So I call up and I say, I, I call up by the way, from their, uh, their email provider's phone number. So caller ID says I'm calling from them. And, and I basically say, Hey, uh, this is, I uh, forget what name I went with. I am with XYZ company, um, your email service provider. And uh, I've noticed that you've been having a lot of performance issues with your email. Is that, is that the case? He says, yes. I said, okay, well, first of all, I want to apologize. And I wanted you to know that I am with a new department, Quality Assurance. And, uh, and I've been looking at a few of our higher profile VIP clients um, and trying to get you squared away so that we don't lose you as a customer. So I've set up a new server that's faster, has better connection, and it should resolve all of your issues. All I need you to do is run this little file here um, and it'll update your email settings. And if that works, we'll run this file on everyone's computer and, uh, and update all the email settings across the board. And uh, he says, great. And he goes to run it and his antivirus actually triggers. <laughs> um, and, uh, and this is right out of the gate. And, uh, and so I've, in social engineering, we have this thing called um, communications modeling. And so you plan out certain things that could go wrong, uh, like malware. If I'm asking them to run malware, the antivirus might run, uh, trigger. And, uh, and, and so I had an excuse. Um, I will say going into this, I always make it very difficult on people to run my malware in the first place. Um, because the more time you've put into trying to run my malware before it actually runs, the more likely you are to ignore, I don't know, an antivirus triggering. And so uh, in, in this case, and it wasn't EDR, I'm dating myself. This was still back when it was actually antivirus. Um, that's why I, I didn't say EDR. Um, and anyway, it, it triggered and, uh, and I'm able to talk my way out of it. Uh, I've made him spend like 45 minutes trying to run the malware. Um, because interestingly enough, the harder I make it on you to run my malware, the more likely you are to run my malware. And, uh, and so we get him to run it. I, it finally gets through. Uh, but at this point, now that we, we got past his antivirus and we got it running, it's been a couple calls. I'm like three hours into a conversation with this guy, built a lot of rapport and it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. So I don't tell him that it works um, because it was all just to get my malware to run anyway. Uh, and so at this point I'm like, hey, uh, still troubleshooting. Is there any chance we could do a screen share and you can just give me control of your computer? And he says, yes. And uh, so he gives me control of his computer and, uh, and I waste about two hours and 15 minutes uh, just pretending I'm working. It was one of the most boring things I've ever done. But I wanted to wait until, uh, because this was a Friday afternoon, I wanted to wait until we got to around 5.15 p.m. So it was about three o'clock that I got this working. And so at 5.15, I tell him, hey, I got everything working, I, uh, but it's a little bit late to do the migration. Why don't I come do it in person on Monday? Um, so now I've scheduled my appointment to come in. He says, sounds great. I'll see you on Monday. Um, but real quickly to, to rewind, the reason I waited until 515 was because this is a banker who's been talking about how he's going to cut out early to go golfing and that he's leaving at 430 all day. I've heard him in the background on the speakerphone when I'm just, you know, doing my thing. 
So I knew if I kept him away from his golf game and kept him at work late, he would be far more likely to give me that meeting on Monday. And it worked. So I show up on Monday. He introduces me first thing to the president of the bank and he starts taking me around. But he volunteers and tells everybody to log into their computer for me, which I hadn't even asked him to do, didn't plan on. Uh, but at that point now, I am stuck in my pretext and I'm going from computer to computer to computer to computer. And it's the most boring thing in the world. Get about two hours into this pretext and uh, the same bank vice president, he comes downstairs and he says, hey, uh, we're celebrating everyone's birthdays for the, the month. And we've got some cake upstairs as well as coffee if you'd like to come join us. And I say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really busy. I'd love to, but I can't. And uh, he says, okay, well, we'll all be upstairs. And so now at this point, there's one teller left downstairs and one armed security guard. The armed security guard's in the front, so I don't really expect to run into him, but I don't want to run into him uh, by any means either, at least not uh, if he catches me. Um, and so now I moved to the next office while everyone's upstairs. And I look across the hallway and I notice that the bank vault's open. Like I see piles of cash wow. just like right there. Um, and so I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it took me a while. I, I got to admit, it took me a couple of seconds to get up the courage to walk in their bank vault because I was slightly nervous I'd get caught in their bank vault with their money in my hands and get shot or something. <laughs> Uh, but I, I walk in and, uh, and I was able to take a selfie with a stack of hundred dollar bills. Um, I set it back down, I return and I go back to working. They didn't find out I was in their bank vault until they got that report about a week and a half later. Um, so that next day I actually show up as myself, Joshua, the ethical hacker to do their internal. Um, and, and it was, uh, one of the more, uh, I don't know. It, it was an interesting, uh, slightly awkward uh, scenario. I, I walk in, I, I introduce my, my real self. You can see it on the bank teller's face that she knows what happened. So she makes a phone call. This bank vice president, he comes downstairs uh, just far enough where he made eye contact with me. He sees who I am. He turns around and just goes back upstairs. Um, that was the last I ever saw of him. Uh, by the way, and about 15 minutes later, the president of the bank comes out. He looks at me with a little bit of a grin, a little bit of disappointment. I'm not sure if it was in me or or his staff or a combination. And he just says, you bastard. And well, that's how I was able to get into a bank ball. Wow. Well, that's crazy that they wouldn't want to learn from their mistakes and, you know, how many bank? Because that's pretty similar to the pen tester that Jonathan had on the show. You know, same thing. He acted like he was the service provider and was able to get in the back and get in every. He didn't get in the the bank vaults, but he did get in everyone's computers. So, um, it sounds like a fun job being a pen tester. <laughs> so, oh, it's a blast. I'll tell you, nerves will get the best of you sometimes. I mean, uh, but what I found is, uh, for me, I always wear a really nice suit. Um, the, the nice suit, uh, helps, uh, keep the security guards away. Um, if you act like you own the place, you get far better results. I mean, if you look at Frank Abagnale and why he was so successful in his criminal career, it was because he hid in plain sight. I mean, uh, and no one ever expects the person playing and hiding in plain sight. Uh, so yeah. Um, 
you know, uh, one time uh, on a more anecdotal, you mentioned why wouldn't they want to train their employees? Uh, the story that really stuck out for me that motivated me and drove me to found Fish Firewall was that as a pen tester, I felt like we weren't doing enough to improve. And so I would go in and issue the same report year after year after year. And the worst example of this was is with one of the largest financial institutions in the United States. Um, I had gone in pretending to be a an auditor from another one of the largest uh, uh, banks in the United States. Um, and, uh, and the very first year I met this guy, I tailgate in off of him. I get him to badge me up to the executive suites. Um, and you'd think that would be the end of it because we put it in the report. The next year, the exact same guy, he remembers me and he lets me tailgate in again. In fact, this year, I don't have to ask. He volunteers. Uh, I did. I tailgated in or gained access off the exact same person four years in a row and issued the almost the exact same report four years in a row. And that's when I said, we've got to do something better to solve this problem. I looked at our industry and all of the security awareness training providers. And I said, you know, everyone's missed the mark. Uh, you know, we've been doing the same thing for the past decade and we're still failing miserably. And the most common phrase in all of cybersecurity is you can't patch stupid, which frankly is an offensive statement that passes the blame to the users instead of taking accountability for us not doing a good enough job training. Um, but anyway, I got off on a tyrant there. I'll, I'll, <laughs> on a no, soapbox. I, I think it's, you know, we had a couple, Trent said, don't forget about your get out of free your get out of jail card um, when pen testing. So that's fun. But uh, yeah, Carson, it was a great story. He said great story with the bank vault hiding in plain sight. Wow. You know, and, and I have had the, the great pleasure of like really um, during, during COVID, we did tons of these bourbon happy hours with a lot of CISOs. And that is questions that we talk about is what are you doing for your teams? And I love, you know, the companies when you hear that they're having cybersecurity day and there's rewards instead of, you know, punishments, you know, and, and more companies should be doing that. Oh, they shouldn't. And we, we tend to be so punitive and, and I don't blame the cybersecurity professionals, by the way, because the cybersecurity professionals should never have been put in charge of security awareness training to begin with. Uh, unfortunately, what we've done is we've taken often some of our, our worst communicators that are very technical, but don't necessarily understand psychology and behavioral science and learning science and all of this that goes into this. And we've tasked them with our most important communications task. So what happens? They tend to, they, they do what they do best. They get technical. Uh, but unfortunately that causes us to not get very good results. And then typically somebody gets frustrated and then it becomes punitive. Well, you clicked on a fish so now you've got to do this remedial training or we're going to punish you. And it just creates this very punitive culture. Um, I believe we've got to do a lot more positive rewarding of our users in order to create a better culture. And that means using a lot more carrots and a lot less sticks. I know at Fish Firewall, we're 97% carrots to 3% sticks. Um, and, and really, that's how it should be, because we're always going to get better results at changing that culture with through carrots instead of sticks. But the other part is we've got to play to the subconscious. Uh, we're forgetting about how much the subconscious is involved in protecting us against threats in our everyday life. 
Um, and, and it can be trained to protect us against cyber threats. We've just got to go and condition our, our users. And what that means is running phishing simulations with immediate just-in-time training so that at the moment that mistake is realized, that they're getting uh, educated because when that mistake is realized, they're uniquely susceptible to learning. They're having a strong emotional reaction right then. That strong emotional reaction creates a chemical uh, reaction in the brain that helps to increase retention. And these are the learning sciences that we've got to bring into our phishing simulations, bring into our security awareness training to be more successful. Because I still talk to people every day and I say, do you exploit your users? And what I mean by that is, do you see if your users will go and fill out a form after they click? That is, you've missed out on your best educational opportunity there. And so it, it shows me that we've got a, a, a fundamental lack of understanding about how to approach this problem. It's because we really don't have any standardized methodologies in this industry for CISOs to follow. We don't have a, a maturity model for the human element. Uh, so there's just a lot. It, it's an area that needs a lot of growth. Yeah. And the CISOs, you know, they carry the weight of the world on their back, you know, and I'm lucky that they come and speak at my events and spend days with us. It's really great because I know that they're so busy and they get hammered by all, you know, all these salespeople trying to sell them something. And, you know, you just, I, I've seen over the last couple of years, CISOs that are friends of mine that are not CISOs anymore, you know, because they just couldn't take the pressure of it. So, What's your advice for, if there's any advice to, you know, how, how do you balance that, that the weight of the world, you know, with just human, you know, just human not being so anxious and, you know, just having some balance between your career and, and life. So uh, first advice is pass any risk decisions up the up the totem pole. That is what the C-suite is, says. Therefore, they need to make all decisions on risk. Um, so you know, get so get that monkey off your back. If there's going to be a risk acceptance, let uh, let your bosses make that risk acceptance uh, as much as you can. I know that's that's easy to say, harder to do. Uh, but I think the other thing uh, that I've that's been really helpful for me is especially with all of these different. Uh, uh, sales pitches that that I used to get when I was a CISO. Um, I, I had two different things. Number one, the first litmus test was uh, if if they're pitching me AI or machine learning, does it reduce my workload? If it doesn't, then that's that AI or machine learning isn't going to do anything for me. Uh, but then the, the next thing that I looked at is is really the three what I would call the, the key metrics of cybersecurity. There's there's really only three numbers that matter. And I have made sure that every one of my vendors would help me out in one of those three areas. That's, are we reducing our number of incidents? Are we reducing our time to detection? And are we reducing our time to resolution? If my products did not help me in one of those areas, then I would evaluate and I'd say, okay, do we have a, a training gap here or a knowledge gap that's preventing this from being successful? Do we have a deployment problem or is the technology just failed and I need to go find somebody else? Um, and then finally, I relied on analysts. I know uh, for all of the, the as a startup business owner, I hate to uh, even admit that. But the reality is analysts help, friends help, you know, talk to your colleagues. What are they doing to solve this problem? What technology do they really like right now? Um, because that that'll help. Um then finally, I really do encourage, uh, you know, uh, some of these newer startups are doing really innovative things. 
Um, and so I see this mass consolidation of the tech stack. And, uh, and I, I think that's a mistake because we're, we're going away from best of breed and going to this single pane of glass. Uh, and I, I think that's going to create a lot more headaches for CISOs as opposed to less. Um, just my two cents on that. I mean, there is like a million other things I want to talk to you about, and I won't even go to some of the other questions because we're probably down to a few more minutes. But uh, Trent said, uh, Wizard has a three to five minute video that uses comedians that are funny and are uh, call them for beige able training. They're very good, which I, I love that. I think, you know, bringing some laughter in a horrible situation is probably what the whole world needs. Oh, yeah. So we use humor in everything we do, all of our content. Uh, we try to learn or work on micro training uh, principles. So if you look at our world, the average attention span is four minutes. I'm sorry, four seconds, not four minutes, uh, four seconds now. And uh, and we're you know, it's one hundred and, you know, well, eight second videos or 60 second videos and, and you, you know, 144 character messages. And so with social media, everything's gone to micro uh, content. And so. What we do there is, uh, is not only do we, we provide that humor, but we make it very personalized. And more importantly, everything is narrowed down to its most uh, simplistic uh, format. So instead of here are 12 different ways to avoid clicking on a fish, it's simply think before you click. And then what we do is we use uh, learning in the context of the or learning through simulations. So if you get a fishing simulation, you hit a landing page that may just say busted or think before you click. But then immediately of your or in your inbox, uh, an email that says, hey, here is the fish I just sent you. You fell for it. And here were a few of the red flags you could have uh, helped identify to help prevent you from clicking on it. And so it's using that actual experience to help them learn those lessons as opposed to, you know, maybe going into it in more of a dry format. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, anything we can do to make it more entertaining and shorter, it has to be shorter. Um, I talk about the four E's of security awareness training, and it's basically it has to be entertaining, it has to be engaging, it has to be encompassing, and it has to be effective. Um, and effective, you know, is the, the measurement, those three, it doesn't reduce my incidents, time to detection, or uh, time to resolution. Uh, but encompassing is one part we don't think about, and I last thing I'll hit on, I promise, Kim, so you don't yeah, have to we, have, we only have a few, more, like a few more seconds. Wait, so, so go encompassing just means you've got a lot of different roles within your organization you need to cover. Look at IT, finance, and the specific threats that cover those. So it's not just general security awareness. Well, Joshua, I told you that this hour was going to fly by because <laughs> I knew that you were going to be a great guest. Thank you so much um, for being on the show today. Definitely want to have you back. Uh, everyone, Joshua Crumbaugh, he is the CEO of uh, Fish Firewall. So check him out on LinkedIn. I'm sure he would love to chat with you all. Thanks, everyone, for joining another episode of And Security for All. We will be back next week. I hope you all have a super safe weekend and stay secure and try to enjoy some time outside. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. 
Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.